On this episode of Cinema Smorgasbord Presents Bar Tell Me Something Good, we'll be discussing the 1982 classic Eating Raoul, a pitch black comedy blending slapstick and satire, cementing Bartel's reputation as a shrewd social observer with razor sharp wit. So strap on your best apron and meet us in the kitchen because we're cooking up a tasty podcast roll today. <laughs> I've waited, know why I've been blue, prayed each night for someone exactly like you. So welcome back to another edition of Bartell Me Something Good, a podcast about the life and work of actor and filmmaker Paul Bartell. I'm your host, Adriana Gober, and I'm joined once again by my Bartell casting comrades, Liam O'Donnell and Doug Tilly. How have you guys been, uh, Liam? Let's start with you. What's what's going on uh, in Chicagoland? Know, you know, I'm out here freezing my bunsies off. Uh, today, the temperature jumped up to a balmy 30 degrees Fahrenheit, Doug. <laughs> in Celsius, that's I don't know and don't care. But uh, but uh, it's weird to be outside, and you know it's still technically below freezing, but it's so much warmer than it has been. I'm like, whew, feeling yeah. pretty good today. It's pretty nice out today, huh? Almost up to freezing today. Pretty pretty nice. Uh, but it's twenty four degrees here in uh, Pennsylvania. See, we're, war- we're 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 we're. I'm predicting that your future heat wave. Um, but yeah, you know, life's life's pretty good. I I think I'm in this weird post Christmas uh, space. Uh, all of January and February is just a bummer for me until March. Yeah. Like the whole both months are just an emotional nadir and then march i'm like i don't know life might be all right so someone someone tweeted i think they were like uh, as we were moving at the end of january into february it's like ah the end of the second worst month going into the worst month of the year (laughs) (laughs) i mean that's how i feel too i hate winter i would i just wish they would move this isn't a big deal but i wish they would move black history month to a less depressing month like it's just such a bummer month, you know, and it's like I try to get stoked. Like, okay, this is, uh, you know, uh, the three of us are interested in 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 this all the time. But in February, a lot of people do put a lot of effort into highlighting things, and like sometimes I'm so depressed that you you might be doing the most amazing film series of L.A. Rebellion yeah. films or whatever it is. I'm not leaving the house, man. Like I'm just so <laughs> bummed. Like you know, like let's let's just all agree that the new Black History Month is June because of Juneteenth, and we're just going to do all our fun events in June because February. Like the the theme of February should just be stay at home. Like everybody, just stay at home. That's what this <laughs> month is. Normally, Liam, I say that your opinions and thoughts are not well kind of considered but i am actually 100 percent on board and also i don't like starting off a podcast talking about the weather but it's been very very cold here yeah in ontario it's yeah. like it's minus 30 celsius the last couple of days which i think is minus oh, 22 man. fahrenheit which is like that is it's brutal i mean it's the kind of brutal where people say hey do not go outside because you might die so <laughs> we've been we've been uh you know spending time around the home and hearth the last few days uh and mostly taking in all of the different uh, elements and dimensions of Paul Bartel's Eating Raoul, which we're going to be talking about today. Indeed. And I, um, it's actually, I'm, I, I don't know about you guys, but I'm very excited for today's episode. Um, <laughs> I mean, not, not only because, as we've discussed previously, 
Eating Raul is is my favorite, and I know Doug. It's also a movie that you really love. Um, but we also this this episode is our first episode with a guest. Woo! And I want to give a shout out to friend of the pod Brian Sauer of um, the Pure Cinema podcast and Just the Discs. Um, two very excellent shows. If you're not familiar with those podcasts, please check them out. Uh, but he put us in touch with Alan Tumayan, the editor on Eating Raul and a number of other Paul Bartel films. And we sat down for an interview with Alan, and he was a wonderful and gracious guest. And we talked a lot about not only Eating Raul, but also um, just uh, his his friendship and working relationship with Paul Bartel and his experiences working um, on New World Pictures films and kind of his 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 perspective on the evolution of of the film industry and how you know his job has changed over the years and it was a really fascinating and fun conversation uh, so we will be playing that interview at the end of this episode so um, please listeners st stick around for that don't just hit the stop <laughs> button once our lovely voices stop talking about uh, eating Raul because we have a great interview with Alan Tumayan honestly what a pleasure it was talking to him uh, so much insight into the making of of the, this film that we're about to talk about but just about Paul Bartel as a person to as a collaborator but also you know Alan is still very much you know part of the entertainment business today he cuts trailers and and featurettes on super big budget movies I, I could have talked to him all day but uh, how how kind of him to give us so much of his time we talk a lot about how a movie is not the work of one or even a few people, but of a whole, you know, team of people. And talking to Alan was a real reminder that there are probably people behind the scenes on every movie you love that you might never have heard about or who were very important to that process. Now, we do talk about how they might have also at a certain time period, physically messed something up that changed the way the movie looked forever, uh, which is one of the dangers of, of the physical media of the time. But uh, but I think also it, it really helps because I think as a culture, like I think as individuals, as a podcast, we talk about this to some extent, but as a culture, I don't think we respect enough how, while there might be someone whose uh, vision is guiding this project, there are teams of people putting in at times, endless hours to try to make this thing work, and knowing Alan was an important part of so many interesting movies, and and later on, like Doug said, trailers. Uh, it was cool. It was a, it was a cool conversation. It has me thinking more about this team effort thing, this team effort art that we call movies. You know, yeah, the collaborative nature of it, one hundred percent. But also the idea that every person, particularly in you know more professional productions with higher budgets. Every person in all of those roles are people who have devoted to their life, their whole lives to that role, right? Like that is what they do. And you're right. I think that sometimes we, we try to. I mean, and for for good and for bad, uh, you know, your belief in the auteur theory and all of that. But it's, it, it we try to to saddle it all uh, blame and and credit to one person or maybe even just a group of of a few people. But yeah, you know, it takes a village, right? It sure does. So we're gonna take a little break here, and we'll play the trailer clip and then when we come back we'll jump right into discussing eating raul meet paul and mary bland you two live in the building you must swing right wrong good night we're so lucky to have found each other a typical american couple i know good night dear. sweet dreams 
with a typical American dream and typical American problems. You are through at Clay Liquor. Mr. Leach, I'm sure the bank has nothing to worry about. It's going to get everything that's coming to it. The bank wants to see what it's getting into. With the Blands, life was just a rat race. A cartoon mouse. Oh, great. Trigger likes you already. Oh, we like B&D, but we don't like S&M. We met at the A&P. But they found a way to beat it. Until... Mr. Raul Mendoza, como esta usted? They met a hot-blooded, emotional, crazy Chicano. I'm a hot-blooded, emotional, crazy Chicano. Eating Raul. Is it a thriller? Is it a romance? This was very wrong. Is it a tragedy? Excuse me. May I sit down? Yes. Is it a comedy? Yes, but not the type that you're used to. Eating Raul, rated R. A relatively boring Los Angeles couple discover a bizarre, if not murderous, way to get funding for opening a restaurant. It's Eating Raul from 1982, directed by, of course, Paul Bartel, with a screenplay by Paul Bartel and Richard Blackburn. Edited by Alan Tumayan, with cinematography by Gary Tiltgis, and music by Arlen Ober. And the cast, I'm just going to go through some of the, the credits here. We have Paul Bartel as Paul Bland, Mary Warrenoff as Mary Bland, Robert Beltran as Raul Mendoza, and we will see him again later in Scenes from the Class Struggle in Beverly Hills, Susan Sager as Doris the Dominatrix, Ed Bagley Jr. as Hippie, Buck Henry as Mr. Weech, a very creepy bank manager. We also have a great appearance from John Paragon as the owner of a sex shop. Uh, and we have cameos from Paul Bartel's sister, Wendy Bartel, as woman in dog food commercial. She, she's uncredited, although she does get a credit as a sister to the director or something to that effect. <laughs> uh, and then we have, once again, Joe Dante cameo as a busboy, also uncredited. And a John Landis cameo as a man who bumps into Mary at the bank. Before we kind of start giving our general impressions of the movie, um, I thought it would be a good idea to maybe just give a basic overview of, of what happens in the film because we haven't been doing that in the last couple of episodes. And I just think, you know, for listeners who, who may not have seen the movie, it just it makes it easier for them to kind of follow our, our conversation. So uh, basically, you have this very uptight boring couple uh paul and mary bland they're they're so boring in fact that their last name is bland really <laughs> driving that point home and they have these aspirations to be uh, restaurant owners um, but they uh, are not well off they're they're struggling financially and they're trying to convince us this potential investor that their restaurant is 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 is, is worth investing in um, but they, they, they run into a little problem because when the investor shows up at their apartment, they happen to have a dead body in their kitchen because uh, a swinger who showed up at their apartment building uh, to attend a swinger party at, at the apartment um, next door, he winds up in their apartment and um, things get a little out of hand. Uh, but then Paul and Mary realize, hey, if we 
if we just kill a bunch of people and take their money, we'll be able to uh, afford to launch our dreams. And so that is really um, how the rest of the movie plays out. And uh, I don't know, uh, Liam, Doug, uh, is there anything I should add before we start discussion? I, I think the only notable thing to add is their relationship with um, Robert Beltran's character, right. Roman Doza, yes. who, who enters the picture as someone who's trying to scam them and try to steal it from them. But what they find is that he becomes kind of a useful um, comrade in, in getting rid of these bodies. And in, in fact, they make more money because of that. But then, of course... Uh, Mary and uh, and Raul, they have a, a relationship that ends up complicating things pretty significantly. Right. And that's about the gist of it. So um, I guess let's let's start with general thoughts and impressions. Doug, I'll start with you. Like, what do you think of eating Raul? I mean, I, I think we've already said it in previous yeah. episodes, and, 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 and it should be pretty clear at this point. I actually think that this is probably the best Paul Bartel movie that I've seen so far. There's obviously ones that we haven't covered so far. It's the best of what I've seen, but it's also the most Paul Bartel movie, right? This is yeah. this feels like – it's so strange, the idea that this developed from a script by somebody else, because when you watch it, it feels not only an extension and an evolution of those early films – that we watch like private parts, but it feels just like his sensibility is baked into every bit of it. And you do wonder sometimes, and they mention it in some of the behind the scenes things, how far the final result is from that original script, how much it evolved and changed, because it seemed like when Mary Warnoff was talking about the script when she first read it, you know, she described it as something that was just like, like maybe the satirical elements weren't as strong in it, that there was a lot more kind of sex on screen. It, it, it obviously changed a lot from its original conception to what it became. But what really stood out to me this time watching it is that this is feels like an extension of those Charles Griffiths 1960s Roger Corman movies, like A Bucket of Blood and Little Shop of Horrors. It's the same sort of idea, right? Even down to the fact that there's a, a group being satirized within it. Uh, you know, the beatniks in A Bucket of Blood, in this case really kind of middle class. Uh, I wouldn't even say it's kind of below yuppies, but certainly that same sort of attitude, very Reagan era, even though this was at the very beginning of that era. Um, and, and just the way that they see the world as this series of terrifying and scary things, but their reaction to it and their way of maneuvering in this world is to murder. And there's never even a question about like police showing up or investigation. I mean, there's some concern well, on their there's part. Very briefly, when they first kill, when they kill that first swinger, Paul says to Mary, you know, we are going to wind up in prison. And she yeah. brushes it off like, no, we'll be fine. And I mean, she was right. right. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the danger of it is if someone decides to turn them all in, like there is some concern in regards to it. But the idea that it's just like, oh, this is a valid way. This is the American dream, right? They, they're they're supposed to be that prototypical couple who have a dream. Their dream is to open a restaurant, to do it on their own steam. But they're so repressed that they're the way that they handle that dream is to, you know, basically it doesn't matter who they mulch up in the process as long as they get what they deserve, right? It's very interesting. And I think that something that you say in the interview as well, which is very well observed, is it's difficult to make a movie like this where the main couple – you're not necessarily supposed to, you might like like aspects of them or find them amusing, but they're not good people and you're not supposed to relate to them. And I think that some people who have seen this movie, they get a little confused about how much you're supposed to think that, that you should aspire to be like the Blands. Right. Their name is Bland. <laughs> yeah. And Doug, you, you, you brought up a, a couple points that I want to circle back to eventually, but first I want to hear from Liam. Liam, um, what did you think of this movie? Because this is your first time seeing it. Oh, yeah. I had not seen it. I knew this was 
one of the ones that was going to be important for us to get to. And so I was pretty excited. And I and I went in a little nervous because I thought maybe my expectations might be set too high. Uh, but I really, really loved this. And it helped me understand, knowing that for y'all, this is his uh, best work, at least, you know, relatively speaking, and that this is maybe the most representative of what he does, it made me appreciate more the sorts of things I've liked and other stuff we've watched, you know, and, and kind of understand a little bit more the tone, you know, there's, there's, a, there's an aspect here where everything is heightened and ridiculous and funny, but still incredibly dark, uh, and, and yet also in its ridiculousness, very real, right? The sort of person who could find themselves in a position of murdering other people, but still be grossed out at sex stuff. It feels a little too true, maybe, for a lot large sections of the American populace. Yep. That, that they would be out, like, totally willing to end someone's life for their own benefit. And then when they hear about, I don't know, bondage or whatever whatever thing that you want to put in that place, in that placeholder, they'd be like, ew. And that's sort of their vibe. Everyone around them is, uh, you know, sort of portrayed as their version of what a swinger is, this caricature of of this sort of uh, person and they're just utterly like see themselves as as above these people in every fucking way even as they are just murderers right they're just uh people who can't i mean again the 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 very um position that they're in where they're financially up against the wall they're financially up against the wall while having a many hundred dollar wine collection that they're unwilling yeah, to part absolutely. with. Absolutely. You know? yeah. um, and even the way that they interact with Raul, who who is also, you know, a, a nefarious character in many ways, it is with this sort of like that they're somehow, especially Paul, they're, yeah. he's obviously better than Raul in every Very way. Very uppity. Yeah, the he's, attitude he's, oh, absolutely. he's better than this criminal. What the fuck are you, man? Like, what are we talking about here? And I just love the idea that it starts with Paul. Like, Paul's just, he's a cashier at a liquor store when the movie starts, right? I mean, yeah. it's just a strange mm-hmm. thing that, but you're, but it is an attitude it, that carries through and is so believable on that level, right? There are people who are just like, doesn't matter where they are. Anyone who doesn't look or act like them, they see is well beneath them. And I think the the assumption that I think people can make too is that the the things that they believe about themselves must also be true. So what part of Paul and Mary's belief about themselves, besides just that they're good people, is that they're also people of great taste. But we have no actual evidence, other than the fact that he owns very expensive wines, which you can have your own argument about what that might actually mean about someone. There's no evidence that these people have any great taste, right? One real estate guy thinks their cooking's pretty good. That's it. So, like, they're willing to... Well, and their house has very, like, kitschy... Yeah, yeah. The, um, the furniture's furnishing, awful. Oh, which terrible. I personally like. I like that aesthetic, but I don't know that most people would agree that that is indicative of good taste. Sure, 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 sure. or at least not the sort of taste. I, I, this is one of the things that we have to negotiate here, which is that I am a believer in the idea that there is taste that can be good. What I am not a believer in is that if someone has some sort of taste that I value as being good, they are there some they are therefore somehow culturally superior to other people. Cuz like uh, in this sense when I say, yeah, there's such a thing as good taste, what I mean is 
taste that I have subjectively deemed to be good because it agrees with me, not because there's an actual uh, objective ontological good in the world. But I think for some folks, there just is. There just is a good. And so while they might be able to, to see some of the silly aspects of the movie, they don't get that there's inherent in the film an idea that all the ways that these people see the world are bad, right? And not not that then the other characters are therefore good, but the other characters are like less real. They're they're caricatures in in a sense. Uh, and I found all of that charming and hilarious, but also more thoughtful than I realized. I guess because once the movie starts and you get a vibe for the silliness of it, you then are maybe as a first time viewer for me unprepared for the fact that there's stuff to actually kind of think about that the that there is there is a comedy here that is sort of cutting into actual societal things and yeah. you know in that interview we watched he was very clear to say well I'm not really satirizing anything that that doesn't mean he doesn't have a perspective it just means that satire is perhaps a little too literal well, or on the nose for what, what he's he said trying to was do. that he he didn't necessarily set out to satirize anything right. specific yes, 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 yes. but i think the the movie winds up Still playing a satire. Sure, I think that's which, true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that I guess is a good segue for one of the things I want to talk about, which is, you know, this idea of, of satire, because this movie is very often described as a satire, and I think that's fair. But I want to talk about what exactly it is satirizing, because I think, um, you know, very often, at least in the discussions that I've participated in or I've seen online about this movie, there is a lot of emphasis on the way that this movie satirizes capitalism or, you know, the, the way that capitalism creates conditions where people have to become very cutthroat and dog eat dog and, and look out only for themselves. And, and certainly we see that happen with the Blands. But there's another element of this movie that I think is also very prominent that is not given a lot of attention, which is how much this movie seems to be influenced by and also sending up 1960s sexploitation movies because so for example this movie opens with a montage of, of various locations in los angeles and, and people going about their day but it's overlaid with narration that sounds straight out of like a 1960s white coder you know like the bizarre sexual habits of los angeles natives that sort of thing <laughs> And so right away, this movie is kind of nudging us to make th that association with 60s exploitation and the the um, the trajectory of, of the Bland's um, lives from from the start of the movie to, to where they end. Uh, it, it kind of follows a very common exploitation setup of like the, the, this naive protagonist or in this case, protagonists getting mixed up in this like weird sexual underworld that they had no idea existed and then being corrupted by it which is what happens um so to me uh i think i think that that element of the movie is just as prominent as whatever kind of um social or political commentary it's making on you know the me generation or, or you know the the dawn of the reagan era america uh, and capitalism, consumerism, but I'm I'm curious if you guys had the same takeaway. 
I think my point of reference may even be a little earlier than 60s sexploitation type movies, even more to the exploitation movies of the 50s, where it, it, it's same. It has the, basically it's the same structure, except with a lot of the sex drained out of it. Or if the sex is in there, it's very sure. kind of uh, suggested as opposed to shown. But just but it's exactly the same idea, right? Someone who's naive end up getting into the the uh, modeling and end up getting into then pornography and you know they they all learn their lesson at the end though of course there's not a lesson a lot of lessons learned in this particular movie it kind of reminds me of um a movie that came out at a, right around the same time which is john waters polyester which oh, also yeah. you know it really it, it feels like there's a lot of similar reference points uh even though those are two very different movies but just that idea it's like it people were who were raised on those kind of uh movies that serve to be warnings against going out and finding fun of any kind. Yeah, it definitely feels like that DNA is all over this. Totally. And, you know, of course, Waters went in a more melodrama direction while Mm -hmm. Martell was kind of more slapstick. But, yeah, I I totally can see the the parallels there. It's funny, too, to think about that Paul Bartell a couple years later would be making a movie with Tab Hunter and Divine as well. Yeah. And then later John Waters with the aborted... Eating Raul sequel. That's right. Which I'm sure we'll we'll talk about eventually. Yeah, I, I I I wasn't thinking about that, but I do. Now that you say it, Adriana, I do think that that's part of it. Uh, and Doug, I I can see what you're saying. I'm less familiar with the 50s stuff, you know. Um, For me, I, I only know them mostly through Mystery Science Theater episodes. Oh, well, there you go. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I do think, in the sense too, that like um, the the movie i think does play a lot with people's expectations you know and it does a lot of like i i think and and we sort of talked about how people might be confused on this but i think what the movie wants to do is have the audience be at least to some extent aware of how paul and mary are gross but get invested enough in what's happening that you sort of um whether you want to or not, you you want them to get the restaurant. You, you start yeah. to want the. You, you can't start, help but root for them. Yeah, you're implicated in their scheme because of how the movie's structured. It, it helps that the worldview that they have is 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 it's not correct in our world, but like they are right to be concerned about these swingers. They are gross, and I mean Mary. And this is one of the things that I always have a little bit of difficulty in the with the movie, but it makes sense when you think about. The context, which is that she, what, almost gets sexually assaulted a half dozen times in this movie. It just seems like it's constantly, she, yeah. she's right to be scared of the world that is constantly trying to attack her. Mm-hmm. I think I think that is uh, one of the ways that the movie is meant to be seen as this uh, not real, this kind of heightened reality, ridiculous scenario. But I do wonder to what extent people pick that up. You know what I mean? And and I think you have to come into it with some understanding of both Paul Bartel and Mary Warrenov's history to yes. get an idea of like Absolutely. Are, they're not gonna identify with these fucking uptight wine snobs. Like that's not that's not necessarily where they're gonna immediately see, you know, and and, and um uh anyway, so I, I found myself thinking about that and thinking about the way that the ending in giving in giving the audience what they think they want and showing us them at this like restaurant in the way that they do as it's like a almost like a a saccharine like happily ever after that there's something about that that almost spills for me into a, a horror movie like that it's like it's it's like a it's so dark it's such a dark <laughs> way to end and if you're not paying attention it might just end and you're like 
oh, happy ending, whatever. Because you haven't stopped to think about how this whole thing is about death and it ends up in cannibalism, you know? And, and if, anyways, I, I just found myself, uh, again, this is my first viewing, so I might be uh, able to pull more out of it on multiple viewings. But on first viewing, I just thought about how the ending could fit on so many movies that are scary, you know, or, or maybe not scary, but like uh, t- terrible in a way, you know, in, in, in the way that they deal with very dark themes. And, and to think about the ways that the film manages to keep a certain tone the whole time that like other lesser filmmakers, I think, would have trouble sticking it out. They would want to break something more obviously, like more obviously wink or more obviously right. do something that kind of clues you into what quote unquote is really going on. You know what I mean? You might uh, balk at this a little bit, Liam, but I always think about this era, specifically eating Raul era of Paul Bartel as having a very punk edge to it, right? Particularly the DIY aspect of collecting all these sure. people together to put this together, but also the fact that it's kind of a fuck you, right? It's a fuck you to the, the, the conventions of filmmaking that they grew up with and, and kind of a mockery of it the whole time. And also, like you were just saying, Liam, it's not forcing you to get it. It's not saying, right, this is a hip movie. It's hip enough that they made an underground comics adaptation of it, right? It's it's so funny to think about things that were so dangerous and underground and edgy, you know, that, that the fact that there's a musical <laughs> based on this as well and oh, things yeah. like that. But, like, this was um, – when this movie came out, it was celebrated – as being cool and hip and underground. And I like the the idea that, that there's still that edge to it even, you know, 40 years later. Yeah, and in some ways I think it's even more relevant. Certainly all the comments on capitalism and what you have to do to right. achieve even the smallest dream that you could have is maybe even more relevant now. Well, yeah. and I, I would suggest that there are themes in this that are resonant with me and Adriana's favorite movie, Tar, uh, in, in just <laughs> this... <laughs> favorite movie of 2022 let's i'm saying that. ever yes. of all time no 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 yeah you're right of 2022 um just in the sense of like uh if you aren't prepared to doubt the very structures of culture and taste that we assume are inherent you might miss the tone uh i think that's true of this movie even if this movie that's is a really easier. great point actually <laughs> I, I think this movie it's easier to hear it's easier to notice or let me put it this way to me it feels easier to notice than it is with tar i don't know if that's true of everyone but i think for me it is but i, I think this is actually resonant for the conversations we were having about death race 2000 right there's a whole bunch of people who like Death Race 2000, and they just think it's kind of a silly, violent movie, and they don't sort of think that there might be more going on there, right? And so, like, I I do wonder if if this is uh, just me starting to understand the sorts of movies that Paul Bartel not just made but wanted to make, in which, like, you kind of got to be clued in to know what's going on. You kind of have to have your antenna up and not that it's impossible, but, but you have to be a little bit on the same page to fully get it, which to me is sort of indicative of um, honestly of like other queer artists. I know where like, if you know, Paul's not going to make a movie. It feels like that's just like, here's all the obvious ways that this world we're living in is shitty. You got to kind of know that this is what's going on. And I think most people get it. It's not like a secret, 
but there it's not impossible that um uncareful watchers might not quite understand why things are the way they are you know i, I was worried that we're being blandish when we talk about movies that way the idea is like we get it other people the rabble they don't get it that sort of thing but i mean you're exactly right this is a movie that could be misinterpreted in fact we already talked we talked about it in the interview how it seemed like other people did sometimes misinterpret what they were seeing here and that it, it could easily be done when they don't have that, that, that signals. But if someone, you know, an openly queer director in the seventies and eighties in Hollywood, I mean, he would know about coded messages, right? He would know about yeah. how, you know, and, and have a very um, refined eye towards, you know, getting that balance absolutely right. And that's why I think this is a movie that, that as you age with it, that you see that it becomes clearer and clearer what it's trying to say. And I think I want to be clear. It's it's not about our ability to get it. I'm just trying to understand his style. That sure. like he doesn't have to, he doesn't feel the need in what I've seen so far to put everything on the surface, you know? And that's not to say that filmmaking where everything is out out on your sleeve is bad. Sometimes you can be really uh, direct and really good at the same time. I don't. I don't think that's uh, a problem. But it is interesting with his style that there's there's a certain kind of um, I don't I don't know how to conceive of it, but almost like a raised eyebrow where sure. like like you you might be able to pick up the tone, you might not. I don't think that's an intelligence thing, but it is a thing where he doesn't care. If you were to say, well, some people might not get it. I don't know that that's his major concern sure. with a number of these movies. We could say that about fucking private parts, right? Yeah. That like. Uh, I'm not sure everybody watching Private Parts was on the same page about where yeah. that movie was at, you know? Well, I mean, well, I mean, I think about it all the time. I, I wasn't trying to be critical towards you, Liam. Believe me, every time I see someone not get the messages of RoboCop or Starship Troopers, I'm like, I'm like, look, maybe you can't be like you can't even if you if you kick people in the face with what you're trying to say. There's always going to be people who just don't see it. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> Let's talk about the performances. Obviously, uh, Paul Bartel and Mary Warnoff are the MVPs of this movie. Uh, they are absolutely perfect. Um, but I mean, I think there's there's a lot of of other good performances in this film. Of course, Robert Beltran, um, Susan Sager. Uh, she's she's a favorite of yeah. mine in this movie for sure. Um, but what did what did you what which performances stood out for you guys? Um, and what did you like about them? Uh, Liam, I'll start with you. I mean, you already brought up the people f who sell the movie, which is, again, Paul, Mary, and, and Robert, like uh, uh, Robert Beltran, because those are the three characters onto which the movie has to hang. And I think that um, uh, I want to specifically say Raul is not an easy character to play because no. – He's a full person, but he also is representing at times some of the stereotypes that like Paul and Mary see the world with a little bit. Right. Yeah. And so I think that's part of the performance that you have to kind of see. And then as far as the, the other performances, there's a lot that are very fun. One of the ones that like isn't fun, but is will stick with me for a long time. One, because it's a dark moment, but two, because there's a, a, a line that he's kind of crossing a little bit is uh, is actually Ed Begley Jr. as the scary yeah. hippie guy. Sure. Mm -hmm. Because it's like by 1982, the idea of a, of a quote unquote hippie is just a guy who's trying to use this, I, you know, obviously false identity to get what he wants. 
there's something about that that is very menacing. And so even though it's kind of a caricature, it also felt weirdly real. Sure. And of all the people to play that, Ed Begley Jr. is a, a kind of a good choice for that. Uh, yeah. So that was kind of psychotic to me. And it like it was a reminder that like what's at stake here, while this is all, again, played at a certain level of humor, is life and death. And it was like fuck right this is kind of dark like that it's it's one of the there are just a number of places in the movie where the darkness is a little more present yeah. and i'm reminded the bank about scene yes again as yes, well yes, yes, yes. with yes, buck yes, henry because yes. there are other times where death is treated in a funny way there's a there's a number of kills in this i mean they're all done with a frying pan but there's a number yeah, and of they're them very are, they're very like 1950s slapstick yes a hundred percent a hundred percent so that contrast is interesting actually like the the very comical treatment of the murders uh, juxtaposed with like the extremely scary and dangerous situations that uh, Mary Warrenoff's character often finds herself in. Right. And I think that um, another one that stands out, even though it stands out just because it's ridiculous, is uh, Don Steele as the swinger party. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> He's but so that's great. <laughs> but, I, I, but I like that contrast, right? Because everything, I mean, that is a scene of mass murder and it is high pitch comedy yeah and yet multiple scenes of uh mary being put in danger might start on one tone and easily shift into a feeling of actual menace you know and so i think the film manages those tonal shifts in a way that is very adept that again another director might screw up or mess up or somehow get some part of that tone wrong because tone is not easy tone is i think people think tone is like the easy part and like script or or dialogue is the hard part but i think the tone of what you're doing um can be hard to manage sometimes doug do you have anything to add oh yeah definitely um I love how Don Steele's character starts with saying, now I can say the stuff I couldn't say on the radio, just knowing that he was a famous DJ at the time. And right. that he was actually playing some variation on that. God, what a great performance. And um, I, he's such a welcome presence in all these uh, Roger Corman uh, films of that era. And obviously in the, the people who came out of that that school, let's say. But I got to bring up the person that you've already referenced, Adriana, which is John Paragon as the sex shop owner. He's so funny. Now, one so of the things... Good. That we found out from, and we might have read this previously, but in the uh, behind the scenes documentary that's on the Criterion DVD and Blu-ray of this film, is that they filled a lot of the smaller roles with uh, members of the Groundlings improv uh, group. So that's why you have John Paragon here, as well as uh, uh, Edie um, McClurg here as well. And I mean, I guess there is probably a universe out there. I know that they at least were considering uh, Paul Rubens playing uh, this role in the film. Uh, John Paragon, of course, would would work with uh, Paul Rubens for a lot of his career. But you also wonder how close maybe Phil Hartman and it was to ending up in this movie as well, because yeah. he was a member of the Groundlings at the time. But John Paragon, God bless him, he's so great in a role that could have been not be it wouldn't be throwaway, but just the idea that you have this finally this this sequence in the movie where you have Paul Paul Bartel is this incredibly repressed button down guy, and you have a guy whose life is sex and is kind of bored with it on the other end, and it's just like. And is, and almost takes offense, in fact, does take offense at the idea that anyone wouldn't be, would be like all hung up on the idea if he's buying a dildo. And he's just like, well, you want that? Then you want this kind of lube and this kind of lube, right? And and you just see Paul Bartel getting more and more kind of flustered as it goes on. Probably my favorite scene in the entire movie and what it, a real uh, scene stealer by John Paragon. Yeah, it's also interesting because it kind of like 
shifts the dynamic where the whole so much of the movie is Paul kind of turning up his nose at like yes so many other people because they're not cultured or they don't they don't know the things he knows and then here he is in a fish out of water in the sex shop and John Paragon <laughs> is doing the same thing to him yes that he's been doing to everybody else and it's so great <laughs> and then you have that little bit where somebody comes up and asks if like the next issue of like what is it nuns and Nazis or something I don't know some <laughs> yeah. ridiculous magazine name if they have it in yet but yeah it's there's so many little little nuances like that in the movie or just little moments, uh, little lines that um, you may not catch the first time around that are just so clever and funny. Or, 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 or um, we talked about this in the interview with Alan, but um, that, that moment where early in, in the film where Paul and Mary are settling into bed for the evening and they have separate beds and we see Paul is snuggling up to a wine bottle body pillow. And it's, it's such a great moment because it says so much about who this guy is without actually saying anything. I mean, it's just so fascinating to take this couple who are, I mean, I, I don't know if this is how strongly this is implied in the movie, but that they they have like a sexless relationship, right? I mean, that is not what they're about. And in fact, she she even vocalizes that after she, uh, she sleeps with uh, Raul after Mary does. And it's just, they're repressed to the point where they, they only exist to be uh, restaurant owners, right? Like they, they, it's not like they don't have a sweetness to them. They have a real relationship, but like the fact that they are surrounded at all times by people who are so oversexed that, that that like sexual assault is something that can happen almost at any moment of their lives while they are people who sleep in separate beds. It's just, you know, it's, it's a really interesting perspective on the particularly uh, the decade that they were just coming out of the kind of free love 70s. Right. The sexual revolution. Yeah. Um, but it's, in- it's interesting, like to that point, there's a moment where Mary is in bed with Raul and this is after um Paul has attempted to uh, sabotage their little affair, um, and he uh, he has he goes back to see um, Doris, the dominatrix, who uh, kind of she shows Paul and Mary the ropes as far as like how how to um, find clients because their their whole system is that they put an ad in a newspaper and they lure people to their apartment so that they can kill them. Um, so, but he goes back to see Doris later on to, to ask for her help to try to scare away Raul. And it leads to uh, several really great scenes where she's in various disguises. But uh, one thing they do is they, um, she uh, pretends to be a, a health inspector, not a health inspector, but like a, I forget the term she uses, but she shows up at, at Raul's house and gives him these pills that he, he thinks are going to like enhance his sexual performance, but it actually does the opposite. And so there's a scene where he is in bed with Mary and she's looking at the label on the pills and she's like, this is salt, Peter. Like, this is not what you want to be using. Uh, but she says, you know, if you're going to force me to make love to you, blah, blah, blah. And I thought that was a very... um interesting moment that it really kind of shows how detached from her own sexuality and desire she is because she's clearly into Raul. He hasn't forced her to do anything, but she just can't bring herself or can't understand that, you know, she does actually have sexual needs and 
So I just I just thought that was an interesting moment that kind of um, gives a little peek into the psychology of the character and what is going it, on. It's why her confession at the very end to Paul, it, it if it was a different character, it would seem like she's just outright lying. But she's really right. just kind of delusional, right? She said right. she he gave me this drug, this stick, and it made me do these things. And she's like, "No, you did the things that you wanted to do." But you know, it, 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 Paul doesn't have, seem that interested in uh, in delving deeper into that. Paul, the character in this game, right? I think also though, there's something about that where, you know, the the, the playing uh, into the audience's expectations because here's this Raoul. I mean, you know the name of the movie, so you should know what's going to fucking happen. Yeah, right. <laughs> and yet I do think there's a sense in which you're just like, but look at Raul. He's so hot. And yeah. You, and you he like wears those and, great suspenders. And you like making <laughs> you like making love to him. And clearly, like, you guys are kind of enjoying all this murder stuff. Like, maybe he's got a bit of a thing. But of course she chooses Paul, right? And uh, there's this sense in which that's all part of the narrative, the inevitability of it. Like, why would she choose Raul? Like, of course she's going to choose this other person who she, you know, they have this very cute relationship, but like it, it never, it's never occurred to her that she doesn't have with Paul what she was having with Raul. It's not even on the table, right? And that's just part of the character, you know? Yeah, totally. I love it. This was a really good movie. I mean, I, I think we all said that, but I think for me as the person who's actually, I, I'm the person who's actually new to this thing. And like, I was, I, I, I can't say I was surprised because I do like uh, Death Race 2000 a good deal. And I like the short films that we talked about, but I was a bit surprised at how much I liked it. I was thinking, yeah, I don't know what to expect, but I'm sure it'll be pretty good. And I, this is really great, and it's really fun. And and I guess I I guess I'm also saying I thought there would be something different. Like, well, in eating Raul, there's going to be this other thing, right? That that maybe maybe when people see a movie like uh, in the Criterion Collection, uh, they're not thinking of something that is as like frankly comedic and silly as this is this is a yeah. fun goofy movie and i don't know if people think of the criteria collection as where you go to find fun goofy movies but holy shit this is a lot of fun to watch yeah 100 percent. i will say that there are it's something that was brought up just briefly in the interview that we'll be playing in just a little bit but the fact that paul bartel was not that interested in the technical side of filmmaking is something that is pretty clear when you're watching this movie, right? I mean, this is not a visually lush movie. It wouldn't be anyway because it was such a low-budget movie. But there also is like, there's very little camera movement, right? I mean, it is it is very much... And in some ways, that, that exudes that feeling of those 1960s-style movies. But I feel like that when people think of Paul Bartel, they think about the content of his films and not necessarily the craftsmanship of the imagery in a lot of those films. And that is what I'm most interested in seeing over the next few movies seeing how that might develop with at least potentially larger budgets yeah i mean i've i've thought about that a lot too like what what a paul bartell a big budget paul bartell movie might look like and i mean and i guess you know we had earlier we were talking about john waters and and similarities between polyester and eating raul but of course john waters did eventually get to work with bigger budgets after polyester well actually after hairspray um and it really was like it just amplified his uh <laughs> his his style and his point of view i think even more so i'm I, i'm curious about what would have happened with bartel but 
Is there anything else you guys want to add before we kind of shift over to like the setting up the interview? I think we should just uh, uh, mention, I think I, I already mentioned the idea that this was turned into an underground comic book, but also the fact that the Blands appear at the beginning of... Oh, we should. Yeah, definitely. Jim Wynorski's horror movie, Chopping Mall. They show up as the characters in this movie at the very yeah. beginning. And I just like, I kind of wish that they had taken on a bit of a Dick Miller type role in the uh, in the movies of people who came out of that Roger Corman factory where like the Blands would just show up to <laughs> to be a little wink even if they wouldn't literally yeah. wink at the camera but I mean it is it is pretty fun to think that the Chopping Mall universe is the same one that Edie Growl takes place in right and of course they they also appear together in uh, Rock and Roll High School but not as the Blands because that was before Eden Raul but That's uh, you know this is something that Bartell talks about in uh, the interview that we watched but like people recognized right away that he and Warrenoff had great chemistry and that they were really good together, that there was just something that about them together that resonated and that people wanted to tap into. So I'm not surprised that they wind up together in Chopping Mall and they appear in other movies together too. I believe they're both in Greg Araki's The Living End. Not they don't have scenes together, but they are both in the movie. Um but yeah people kind of thought of them as a, a package deal yeah it's actually hearing her talk about him in the the kind of making of segment on the criterion it's a little it's not sad she doesn't seem sad when she talks about him but she almost talks about him like he's still with us you know what i mean yeah she's just like it's like paul is this and paul and it's just you can tell the affection that she has for him yeah as as a creator and it's just you know i, I feel a little bit bad that when you look through his career it's just like especially when it comes to the potential follow-up to eating raul that feels like a real, like, it was so close to happening. And what an amazing world it would have been that we could have had that. But it's also, boy, Paul Bartel had a real tough time just he trying really to get did. movies made, right? I mean, I think about we're eventually going to get to shelf life. And the story of that is so sad and kind of frustrating as well. And it's just like, the world deserved more pure Paul Bartel movies, right? Not work for hire, stuff like this. And, and you know, maybe if he came along, maybe if he was starting a little earlier, his sensibilities seem a little bit more tied to what people could get away with in the seventies, even though there were some things he couldn't get away with, uh, than right. the eighties where, I mean, you could tell, I mean, we'll find out. I, I shouldn't say we can tell. I just know that he, the, the movies that we're going to be uh, watching in the next few episodes are not known as his biggest blockbusters. And yeah, he did, as you said, it, he had a really hard time getting films financed. And I think that probably was a big factor in him kind of shifting focus to acting for, most right. of the rest of his career but it it is really a shame because he was such a unique voice and i think the the world could have used a few more of those pure bartell movies to borrow your term but maybe there's an alternate universe out there where there's just like where he's like the fassbender of of, of that <laughs> universe and just has tons and tons of movies and other projects I mean, the big thing is, of course, you know, all of these filmmakers that came from the same place, like your Joe Dante's and things like that, even ones who didn't have the, the financial success of some of those directors, uh, you know, since the age of the Internet started, they're celebrated so regularly, right? And it's so, it, it's, you know, I wish Paul Bartel would, could have lived a little bit longer just to see how, yeah. and I hope, hopefully he did see a lot of that, but just the, just how kind of consistently he is celebrated and how much his work is still enjoyed. 
So as I mentioned at the top of the episode, we recorded an interview with Alan Tumayan, the editor on Eating Raul, and a number of other Paul Bartels movies, um, Not for Publication, Lost in the Dust, um, Scenes from the Class Struggle in Beverly Hills. Um, you know, he's also, he was an assistant editor on The Howling, and he's worked on various um, trailers and TV spots and other uh, projects over the years. Um uh, so we got to talk to him about eating Raul and kind of about his his career, his history in the industry, uh, and it was a really really fun conversation. Uh, so we hope you enjoy. Before we jump into eating Raul and your experience working on that film with Paul. Uh, I kind of want to hear a little bit about you and your history with film. And, um, you know, like, at what point did you realize that you wanted to work in the film industry, that this is something that interested you? Uh, I was, I wanted to be in the film industry probably around the time I was uh, applying to colleges. Mm. Um, and I was good in math at school. And I thought, I have an older brother who's uh, seven years older, and he followed uh, a pattern in mathematics and did very well. But as I took high school math my final year, I ended up being very bored by it, and I thought, I don't like this. And then when I started looking at college brochures, I saw that uh, there were film programs and film classes, and I thought, wow, this sounds perfect, and I'd love to do this. So uh, I went to a school called the University of Bridgeport in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and they had classes under a journalism program. But that first year that I went to school in 1990, uh, 1972, uh, they had just begun a new major in cinema. Uh, so I signed up. I was one of the first eight students who were cinema majors that year. Uh, and it was a wonderful program. We learned a lot and had great equipment. And the teacher was into experimental films and documentaries. And he would encourage everybody to just take a camera and go out and make a movie. So I did this and had this exposure to great movies for four years. And then when I graduated, it was like, well, I live in New Jersey. And that's right across the bridge from New York City. I could always work there, but most of the work in New York was television and commercials. So in order to work in movies, the real scene was in California. So I told my mother, I said, one of my friends is planning to go to California and he's asked if I want to go too. So I want to do that. And she says, oh, don't they make movies here in New Jersey, in Connecticut, uh, New York? I said, no, not the same way. So I just on a whim, went out to California and have been out here ever since. Uh, now, before we started recording, you were kind of telling us about how you got your first film gig. Um, and uh, so I just wanted to ask if you would be willing to um, retell that story just for our listeners, because I thought it was really interesting. Okay. Well, um, I came out to California in the summer of 1976, and I didn't know any people out here, really. Uh, so I met someone who suggested Roger Corman's New World Pictures because he said that was a company that was famous for giving young 
students an opportunity to work in the film industry. And he gave me the name of producer John Davison and said, please give him a call, see if you can meet him. And uh, I arranged to meet John and walked into his offices one day for the meeting, wearing a jacket and tie. And John politely greeted me and said, what's with the jacket and tie? Don't you know, this is New World Pictures. And so put me at ease <laughs> right away. Uh, but said he didn't have anything for me to work on and suggested I talk to somebody he knew of who was starting a movie and said a word of advice. In order to get your first experience in the business, be willing to work for free. So I took that to heart and I called the people up and they said, I'm sorry, we don't have any open positions. And I said, well, that's okay. I'm willing to work for free. And they said, oh, all right, come on down. We'll find something for you to do. And that started the ball rolling. I was a production assistant on a movie called Bad Georgia Road with Carol Lindley and Gary Lockwood. It was a lot of fun. I drove a motor home every morning, had to pick up coffee and donuts at five in the morning, drive out to Piru, California, where it was doubling for Georgia. <laughs> and, uh, and it was just the most fun. It was about a four week long shoot. And I got to meet a lot of people on the crew who were former New World Pictures employees. And, um, and that's how I started making connections with people from New World Pictures. Uh, and that's actually a pretty good seg segue into Paul Bartel because my understanding is, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that you met Paul through Joe Dante. Yes. Well, uh, actually, on that first movie, Bad Georgia Road, I worked with Michael Fennell, who was a, a prop man on that picture. And uh, Michael subsequently uh, was still working at New World as a prop man, and uh, he also started working as an assistant or, uh, yeah, an assistant producer. Uh, and so he hired me on reshoot jobs uh, after that, like on... Uh, I can't remember the movie. It was with Kate Jackson and David Carradine, a uh, car chase movie. Anyway, so when we worked um, doing things, uh, filming car stunts, Alan Arkish was the director. And so I got to know Michael very well. And through him, I got to meet Joe Dante. Uh, that was how I ended up working on the editing of um, a movie called The Howling. They were starting up a production. And this was in 1980, and I had been working as a production assistant and uh, stuff like that and not going anywhere, really. So I said, I need to learn a craft, and I thought editing would be a good thing to do. I did that in college. That was fun, but I didn't know anything about how to do it in professionally. So uh, I went to Mike Fennell. I said, hey, I hear you're starting up this movie. Do you need help in the editing department? They said, oh, no, we've got our editor and our assistant. We're all set. Thank you. I said, well, I'll be willing to work for free. And he goes, oh, OK. He goes, let me introduce <laughs> you to them. <laughs> and the, the magic thing, words. <laughs> the, yeah, and it worked like a charm for the second time. And so then uh, uh, Kent Beta was the assistant editor, and Mark Goldblatt was the editor. And Kent uh, 
had a lot of work to do. So he taught me uh, to basically be uh, a second assistant editor. And here's how you sync dailies, keep uh, the log books and all that sort of stuff. And it was a lot of fun. And eventually they felt like, I guess I was helpful. So they started paying me like $100 a week. And I thought that was great. Icing on the cake. (laughs) How were you affording to live during that time when you were doing this work for free? Well, it was remarkably cheaper to live in California back then. I had a um, a furnished apartment with utilities for one hundred and forty five dollars a month. Holy so shit! You can picture that. So, I literally cannot picture that actually. Yeah, and I didn't own a car. Well, by then I did own a car. Uh, it was a hand-me-down car from my cousins. Sure, <laughs> but yeah, I, I lived very cheaply and uh not until i got married did i <laughs> learn to spend money really <laughs> so um at what point did you meet paul martell um the first time i actually met paul was on grand theft auto i was a production assistant on ron howard's grand theft auto and paul was in some scene where he was playing uh, uh, a groom in a newlywed couple that was on vacation on their honeymoon and their car gets stolen and paul was a lot of fun and everybody on the crew knew paul because they were all formerly working with him uh, on pictures so they said yeah paul's a great guy and then uh on the howling uh when i was actually working with joe and michael Paul Bartell was asked to by Joe to be the interpreter when they were dealing with uh, Pino Donaggio, the composer of the soundtrack on The Howling. And Paul sure. spoke Italian, and so he would translate in Italian to Pino and vice, vice versa. And uh, that's how Joe was able to communicate with Pino. And uh, I got to know Paul that way. And then years later, when I was an assistant editor, I heard Paul was shooting something. Um, And so I went back to the same offices that Michael and Joe were using. uh, And I said, I met Paul. He was borrowing their offices. And he was looking for an assistant editor for Eating Raul. And I said, um, this is my resume. He goes, oh, that's very good. Okay, great. You're hired. And then uh, (laughs) they start shooting. And the next day I sink the dailies. And he said, why don't you try assembling that scene and see how it goes? I go, all right. So I showed it to him the next day. And he says, oh, this is very good. Okay, you're now the editor. (laughs) And that was it. I became the editor on Eating Raul. I was my own assistant. Wow. And, and the editor. Uh, it was just a wonderful little time. Alan, off mic, we were talking about how things are a lot different today in that um, companies couldn't really maybe um, both give the opportunities or take advantage of people who want to jump into the industry because of, you know, more regulations, insurance, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I got to say, like, as a, uh, as a, as a person in 2023 – Whenever I hear stories about New World Pictures, it sounds like utter chaos to me. It sounds like a wild place where people are just doing whatever. Was it was it as chaotic as it feels when you're watching old featurettes and things like that, or was there, you know, some sense of like this is a this is a real place of of business, just like every other studio around? No, there's definitely a sense of 
business. It's just very serious. His corporate offices were quite serious, and hmm. you could tell he wasn't fooling around. And if he didn't like people, he would fire them. But sure, the, yeah. uh, the atmosphere on the sets was always extremely professional. The, the difference was they just expected you to step up and learn and do, you know, and not complain. Uh, the, the notable thing about the movies back then is they would just work endless hours. I mean, it was easy. There was to work 12, 14, 16 hour days uh, because everything was non-union. Uh, the only people who were union were the actors. And it was the second assistant uh, director's job to sort of ask favors, you know, like uh, bend the rules a little on meal penalties and things like that. But they treated the actors with respect and they would always make sure they got their 12 hour turnarounds and things like that. It was just the rest of the crew that was, uh, you know, treated like uh, slaves. <laughs> but, you know, everybody was willing to do it because you had the chance to work on something that you would never get to do in the business. Sure, uh, yeah. Alan, kind of notoriously, Eating Raul, it had, it was kind of being shot over a long period of time. Did you know that it was going to be such a kind of a, uh, a piecemeal editing process when you first started? Well, when I first started, um, about maybe a quarter of the movie had already been shot and assembled. Right. And that was my first introduction to the movie. Um, people like Joe Dante had helped out and they had donated short ends from their productions to the film to, to Paul. He would uh, borrow crews and equipment when it was a weekend and they weren't shooting. So he would ask favors and everybody would pitch in and say, yeah, let's help Paul. Everybody loved Paul. And they'd go shoot and um, he'd have free equipment, free crew. Everybody would uh, pitch in. And so when I came on board, he had raised enough money from his parents selling their house to finish the movie. And he was planning on a two-week shoot to uh, film everything that he needed. And he brought Ann Kimmel on board to produce everything. And uh, he was legitimately paying me, I think, 300 a week to be the assistant editor. And that was fine with me at the time. And, um, you know, he gave me, he just dropped this in my lap, said, here, now you can be the editor. And it was fine. <laughs> I, I mean, I had some experience by that point. So it was just learn as you go. And. Um, and fortunately it just, uh, turned out to be a great little movie. I mean, we worked on it for close to a year. I mean, not uh, just fine tuning it and having screenings and things like that. It was quite an interesting process, but I was involved in the whole thing and I got to be on reshoots that we did and, uh, I got to appear in the movie and things like that. It was real, it was almost like a student film. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I'm curious about what your working relationship with Paul was like, because some directors um, are very hands-on in, in the editing process, and they, they just want to be involved every step of the way, while others are kind of more comfortable giving some general direction, but otherwise, you know, letting the editors do their thing. So um, how, how often was Paul like, in the editing room with you? How closely did you work um, during the editing process? Well, Paul mostly would give me um, 
notes on dailies and say, I like this take best, or I'd like you to start with this shot and then cut to that and just broad strokes kind of things. But other than that, he left 95% of it up to me to cut. And then once I showed him something, he would say, yeah, that works, or no, let's do this, or you need to focus on this actor for this line, or that sort of thing. Um, Paul uh, was not as concerned with the technicalities of filmmaking um, as much as uh, the actor's performance and the story. And uh, if you ever talk to other people that work closely with him, especially Bob Schulenberg, you know, he'll tell you the same thing, that his interest was not in details like the photography and the camera moves and things like that. It was the performance. So it was up to other people to just kind of inject some of their own um, techniques and ideas. And he was generally, yeah, that sounds fine. Let's do it. Uh, so it was a wonderful collaboration. I mean, he was extremely supportive, uh, very encouraging, and very pleasant to work with. It was a, it was the most wonderful work experience I've ever had, really. Uh, and so it led to working on five of his movies in total, and it was absolutely marvelous. It was wonderful. Even if the movies themselves weren't all wonderful. <laughs> they were all wonderful to work on and great experiences. Along similar lines, like, um, do, you, do you have any... Like favorite um, like memories with Paul or moments or just things uh, while you were working on any of these movies that, that stick out in your memory as being particularly um, indicative of, of the kind of, of person and, and creative that, that Paul was? Well, on uh, Scenes from the Class Struggle, we were filming that in 1988, and he was experiencing a lot of difficulty with the producers of the movie. Um, it was, I can't even remember the name of the company at the time, but they were in New York and we were in Los Angeles and he would send cuts of the movie to them and they would just send back pages of notes. They want him to do this. They want him to do that. And he was so upset and incensed over some of their comments and he would write a detailed answer back to them about each line. I will try to accommodate this, but the reason for this is this and this. And then eventually it got to line, uh, you know, item 14. No, <laughs> that sort of thing. <laughs> and, but he was, very, he was very troubled by it and, and distressed. And I could see it was a lot of um, aggravation for him and a lot of uh, worry and stress and at the time i thought oh yeah you know i'd love to be a film director someday i thought this was what i was working towards and after that experience i started thinking more clearly like you know what maybe i'm not cut out for this kind of aggravation and pressure i'm happy with editing i think i'll just stick to that and, <laughs> <laughs> and that was that yeah do you have a favorite paul bartell movie uh, well, certainly Eating Raul, and probably after that, I would have to say Scenes from the Class Struggle. Uh, Those because, are also my two favorites. Yeah, it was, well, they were also the more personal films for Paul, too, uh, because 
uh, after eating Raul, he was able to do Not for Publication, which is, was an old script that he and John Meyer, a close friend of his, had written. And he used to say, oh, yeah, we wrote this script 15 years ago, and it was just sitting in a drawer, and we always dreamed of doing it. And then after eating Raul, he was actually able to do something, and he pulled it out and got somebody to s suggest, yeah, let's do that. And I remember... Uh, Dick Blackburn, his co-writer on Eating Raul, was begging him, you know, really, Paul, I don't think this is the right kind of movie for you to be doing at this point in your career. But it was a, a little dream project, a pet project for Paul. And it was a lot of fun to work on, and we shot it in Dallas. Uh, but, you know, it didn't do much for his career. And if anything, maybe it hurt. And then, of course, after that, he did movies that other people had written and produced. And, uh, you know, so they weren't his pet projects. He was doing it as director for hire. So not until scenes from the class struggle did he have a chance to do something that was really in his wheelhouse. Alan, around that time, I mean, I was looking at some news articles from the mid 80s talking about the potential sequel to eating Raul that Paul had been working on. And I know that he completed a script and almost even had funding before his death. Mm -hmm. Was there ever a suggestion that, that you would be brought in to work on that film as well, if, if that ever did come together? Yes, it did come together. As a matter of fact, at mm -hmm. the end of Scenes from the Class Struggle, we were turning our editing room right over into the editing room for Bland Ambition. That was the name of the movie. Right. Because he had the script and he had financing from, I want to say, Hemdale Pictures, maybe. It was a company like that. I think it like might have been that. Vestron. No, I don't think it was. Well, it could okay. have been. Who knows? Yeah, it might have been. Later. Anyway, we got to the point where we were talking to the equipment rental houses about renting movieolas and doing all this. We were just going to go right into it. And they had even, they were in pre-production. They had crew people all assigned and everything. And then about a week before the film was supposed to begin, maybe it was a month before, I, I could be <laughs> forgetting. But the company that was financing it just went bankrupt. And it was like public knowledge in the news and all. And we're like, what, what, what does this mean? And it just meant that the movie's not happening. And that was the end of it. So... Uh, yeah, we were sad, but it was very close to being made, and we were excited about it because it just seemed like a, a great concept. Paul mm -hmm. and Mary running as yeah. co-governors of California and <laughs> adopting this little devil child from John Waters. Anyway. Oh, that's uh, right, because John Waters was supposed to be in it, right? Yes, he was going to play the, um, uh, oh, heck, what do you call that when you... Uh, the place where you adopt where children orphanage. from. Orphanage, thank you, yes. <laughs> and uh, he wanted to get rid of this troublesome child, so he suggested, you know, here, this is the perfect child for you too. And, <laughs> of course, this little kid starts to realize, hey, these people are using me to, you know, for this purpose of being a sweet family appearance. And so she started blackmailing them. And the idea was that... Um, uh, Paul and Mary were so under her control, they said, we have to do something. And they came up with the idea of killing the kid and making it look like an accident so they could gain sympathy to help them in their election. 
Anyway, it was a great script. It would have been a lot of fun. Um, just so very briefly, I want to touch on Lust in the Dust because I am a, a huge fan of John Waters and Divine. Um, but I was just curious, like, did did you get to spend any time on on set during Lust in the Dust? Did you get to meet Divine and Tab Hunter? Or... Um, not a lot of time on set, but we did get to go to Santa Fe, New Mexico, and we were on location there for probably at least two months while during the filming. And we set up an editing room in the hotel we were staying. Um, and it was wonderful. It was just great being in Santa Fe, great working on those people. And we got to meet uh, Divine at, in the evening. Uh, we had a projector and we would get the dailies shipped out to us every day in Santa Fe. And we would screen them for the crew and anybody who wanted to stay after work and watch the uh, dailies and any cut scenes from the day before. Uh, and Divine was uh, very nice. Uh, he would just kind of come casually strolling in in these fuzzy slippers and watch <laughs> the dailies and then go Amazing. off to, to bed or whatever. But uh, it was a lot of fun. And we got to work closely with Tab Hunter. Uh, and Tab was very nice. And uh, it was a very pleasant work experience. Uh, and it was great being in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Because Paul knew all the good restaurants, and he'd say, where do you want to eat tonight? And we'd go, well, I don't know. What do you know? Oh, well, there's this great restaurant here or there. And it was always about, you know, good food. And uh, he introduced me to a lot of nice restaurants. So it was wonderful. Great work experience. And a fun movie. Oh, yeah. It's fun to watch. Um and so, then the, the other irony, just real quick aside, um, I used to cut trailers in between waiting for Paul to come up with another movie. I'd go back to New World Pictures, which Roger had sold to some other people, and I worked in their trailer department. And after Lust in the Dust, uh, lo and behold, the new New World Pictures picked up Lust in the Dust for distribution. So I actually got to cut the trailer for Lust in the Dust. <laughs> and work on that and that was a lot of fun but we can save that for another time <laughs> yeah we'll have to have you back on for for that or another movie but um so when i you eventually you know moved on and started working with other people but it seems like you remained in touch with paul over the years um and i saw you know on the Eating Raul DVD Blu-ray, one of the um, bonus features, is a blooper reel that you edited together for, I believe it was his 60th birthday party? Yes. Yeah, that was on, uh, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Class Struggle, he turned 60 during the shooting of that. And so uh, I had put that together as a little gift for Paul. Uh, sadly, though, they weren't able to use the music from the... Uh, from that piece because I guess that would have, they would have had to license the music for the, uh, for the DVD. So it plays kind of awkwardly on the DVD because there's no music. In it. What was the music? It was mostly uh, just songs or, or the soundtrack from the movie, I believe, okay. but being used in a different capacity, they would have had to relicense things. Sure. Mm. Uh, so anyway, 
But uh, other than that, yeah, it was fun. Uh, I think I held on to those uh, or bloopers. I must have. Yeah, I think that was one of the things I did when uh, we had worked on eating Raul. I did, made a made a conscious effort to hang on to that stuff. That's so interesting because watching it, I really did think it should have music. So I bet you it does play a lot better with that sound. I just watching it, I thought, ah, you think they'd put something all over this, you know? Yeah, it's kind of embarrassing because they credit it to me and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, people are going to think I cut this stupid thing without any music. How awful. But, you know, it was all cut to music. And unfortunately, I don't think I have a copy of it from back then because it wasn't easy to make copies of things back in those film days. You had to send things out to a lab to get transferred. And, of course, even cutting it on music, you had to cut the music on a separate track, not like yeah. now on right. digital, everything. You got unlimited tracks to build music and sound effects. It was a whole different animal on a moviola with one picture head and one sound head. <laughs> you had to cut <laughs> things individually afterwards. Is that what you used for eating Raul? Mm-hmm. All the movies. That was everything. It was just a good old-fashioned upright moviola. And um, you're just cutting picture, sound. The sound consisted of uh, just the dialogue and any key sound effects. Like if there's a gunshot or a crash, you know, you just grab a sound effect or take whatever from production and then you cut that in. But you can't have both. You can't have background sound effects while you're, you have dialogue. That you would need a flatbed that had multiple heads, a flatbed editing table. And uh, nowadays, I guess you just use like Avid or Final Cut. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you can, you, you have unlimited tracks, so you'd have music playing along underneath. You can adjust the volume to keep the music low and then bring it up higher when you want a montage or opening. Anyway, and sound effects, you build elaborate sounds into it and background sounds. We didn't ever do any of that stuff back then. Even when we cut trailers uh, back then on Moviola, it was just you cut in not dialogue, narration, and the key sound effect. And then once it gets approved, then you go and build um, all the sound effects to fill it in. Of course, before we presented it to uh, the studio, you would always put it up on a flatbed and you'd build music to it on the uh, flatbed because they usually had two or three sound heads on a flatbed mm. editing system. And so then you would have, after you cut the piece, you would build some music for it. It was a whole different process. <laughs> and consequently, you know, it was difficult because you couldn't do proper dissolves between cuts of the music. You had to right. put music A on one chant on one track and the music B on the other. And then you just make an indication, okay, from point here to point A to point B, do a one second transition on the volume levels, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> Man. It was real wild west. <laughs> Alan, I feel like between, you know, uh, the doing trailers and features, like, not only do you have this history of editing, but also like you've seen so many transitions in the industry and in technology and things like that. Like what, what has that experience been like navigating each sort of new uh, 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 change into how the business is being done? Well, each new improvement brought some wonderful uh, advantages. Sure, uh, yeah. Like when I moved into video editing, all of a sudden now – 
you had two tracks of audio. There was a channel one and a channel two, a left and a right. So while you had sound uh, dialogue and sound effects on one channel, you could put music on the other. And now right there, without having to mix anything special, you had your music riding along. That was a big improvement. And of course, nonlinear editing on the computer, that just blew everything wide open. And you had total control to just pick things up and move it like oh i like this scene but it should come later in the movie when you're cutting it on film you literally had to peel the splices off the film and off the soundtrack re-splice the ends together and then move something later or earlier and open up the film splice it into there it was a much more time-consuming process but fun yeah, except for the cuts I would get on my fingers. And sure, yeah. Occasionally as the film rolls down onto the floor while you're watching it, and then you're, the wheels of your chair roll over it, and then the, the editing machine just grinds to yeah. a halt, just and it rips the sprockets on the film. That was not fun. That's I, I feel like that's something we don't talk enough about, how right, right now film not even just film in this in the larger sort of movie sense but like making visual media is something someone does on a computer which feels very detached but mm -hmm. formerly making all these things whether it was a movie tv trailers whatever it was it was a physically visceral experience you could yeah, get it was hurt very tactile you could, yeah mm -hmm. you could physically fuck it up you know whereas like <laughs> now it's like oh no i erased the file or it all feels more detached in a way uh, whereas i mean even like showing movies used to be you had to physically know how the projector worked things could mm -hmm. get caught in the the projector in a way like you were more of like a a tactician in a sense like you had to have a mechanical know-how and now it's so different it's interesting how we don't really talk about the very sort of change in the medium itself like the physical medium well, it was very common to see a movie in those days, and you're watching in the theater, and all of a sudden the film jams up for a second, and then you see the famous effect where the film burns from the center mm -hmm. outward. Yeah, and yeah. that literally happened because, you know, the heat from those uh, bulbs was tremendous, and of course... The film is generally moving through there very rapidly, so it doesn't have a chance to burn. But there were all kinds of problems. Uh, and so in editing, it was equally the same way. A lot of times you'd be trimming things shorter, and then you had to keep track of all those little pieces of film you cut off. You had to write the code numbers on it with a grease pencil, store it in a little envelope, and file it away because you might need that again. And a lot of times, if you did need to lengthen a shot, you go, where is that piece of film? Why can't we find that? And, you know, sometimes you'd have to take some slug material, like just black leader, and go, well, here's four frames of this because I can't find the original film. And the only way you would get that picture is if you ordered that same shot from the laboratory and say, here, I need a shot on this date, the, you know, camera roll so-and-so, the take, and... Uh, seen this take that and they would give it to you the next day but you know that cost money and the production would go no we don't want you to spend the money on that stuff just slug it with black leader you know we'll figure it out and also in those days if you did a dissolve you didn't get to see the dissolve you had to draw the dissolve on the film with a grease pencil so literally you're cutting the film and you've got a scene you want a one second dissolve from point a to point b 
you cut the film right in the center, join the two pieces, and then you would roll it back on your editing table and you'd count out whatever it is, 12 frames on one side and 12 on the other because it was going through 24 frames per second. And you would take a grease pencil, mark it from one corner of the film to the other corner of the film with a little ruler. You draw this grease pencil. So when you watch it run through the movieola, you'd see this line go from the left to the right. And that was indicative by the speed of how a dissolve would be taking place there. And you had to just know that that's what that meant. Is that the same uh, process for? Uh, there's some iris di- like transitions. The iris out. Yeah. Yes, yeah. any any kind of transition that took a length of time, you would indicate it with that kind of mark, and then of course you would know what it is. And then for screenings, you would, um, if you had the budget for it, you would request from an optical house that they create that effect for you for that shot so when you screen it for audiences they'll know what the heck they're looking at and they just don't see this dirty greasy line going through the (laughs) picture and of course a lot of times especially on corman movies and low budget stuff you didn't have the luxury to go and request that stuff because that cost a lot of money and And i I apologize if i misheard you saying this earlier did you say that you appear in eating raul Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Where can well, we find you? <laughs> well, interesting that you ask, because I watched the movie again yesterday just to refresh myself. In the in the very opening sequence of the movie, there's this little um, little narrative section about Hollywood mm-hmm. and uh, the struggles of people in Hollywood, and just about everybody in that were all people who were friends of Paul's or working on the crew. Um, and um, as a matter of fact, um, uh, Bob Schulenberg uh, was playing this guy, a homeless guy wrapped in newspapers with a oh, bottle yeah, of I wine. That. <laughs> that, that's Bob Schulenberg. Um, Paul's sister, Wendy Bartell, poses as a prostitute with another woman, and they're leaning on a mailbox. She's the girl on the left. Um, Ann Kimmel is seen. She's the producer. She's kicking a Cadillac, uh, angry at the driver, and she's pounding on the hood. And I play a little scene where I come running and I push a young woman into the back seat of a Rolls Royce. uh, Right, yes. Just to show the random violence. Um, That's a fleeting image of myself uh, my other better appearance in the movie is when paul goes to visit doris at her house mm-hmm. and the scene opens with a dog food commercial right. because um, <laughs> yes. raul is selling the bodies to a dog food company <laughs> for money and so here's this commercial for the dog food called doggy king and there's this happy family sitting at a table singing this song or the in the background uh, and um i'm dressed as the doggy king i'm sitting at the head of the table actually perfect uh, i was in the dog costume and that's my voice going mmm it tastes so good you know for that kind of thing it's so bizarre that this family is sitting around dinner table with dog food dishes in front of them and Paul's sister, Wendy, is the mother. She's sitting on one side of me. Anyway, and that's just the way the filmmaking was. We had to do a lot of this stuff 
uh, ourselves because it was a cheaper and b quicker and um, uh, it was all part of the process um, i think i i even told uh, adriana that uh, when i was working on the howling there was uh, mm -hmm. uh, some reshoots that we did at the very end insert shots um, and we all pitched in and helped out on that and i got to at one point uh, have some makeup and a werewolf hand put on my on my hand and i got to be one of the flailing arms inside the barn as the barn is burning at the end of the movie <laughs> pounding to try to escape from the barn but uh, the famous one uh, was uh, i got to be uh, the uh, back of the lovers in the love making scene when um, there's this transition uh, from uh, I forget his name, the actor who transitions into a werewolf for the first time. It was Dee Wallace's husband. Oh, uh, right. Anyway, um, so they did an insert shot of me laying on the floor, and um, Rob Bottin had a, a werewolf hand with blood tracks in the fingertips, and they ran this across my back, so it looked like the woman who was making love to him was scratching his back. Uh, while they're anyway and that was my back for this insert shot it was pretty funny um yeah it was just we everybody would just pitch in and do stuff and i so it's interesting because as you said that often happened on these lower budget movies out of necessity but as a viewer i've always liked that because it it creates the sense for me of of camaraderie or that you know oh this is like a filmmaking family and they're all pitching in Mm -hmm. um so i i always like to see that well specifically in eating raul because that was uh practically all done with uh well not practically but you know partially done with free labor everybody pitching in to help out mm -hmm. a lot of those people from new world and friends of paul's all appear in the movie um as little background extras like john davison is in the uh uh, the wild party scene in <laughs> Paul and Mary's apartment building. Um, Joe Dante played uh, a waiter at, uh, yeah. when he goes to sell his wine, his expensive wine at this uh, hotel. And then Paul is stuck with the bill and Joe Dante comes by and clears the table. John Landis has a cameo. He walks in behind Mary when she's going to the bank to meet Buck Henry. Uh, anyway, stuff like that. People would just love to help out. And sure, I'd love to <laughs> drop in and help you and be in the movie. So I, I wanted to ask you a bit about um, what you've been working on lately. Because uh, I know now you've you you do a lot of um like trailer editing tv spots um featurettes that mm -hmm. sort of thing um how did you make that that transition well as uh i think i briefly mentioned it while you're waiting for another job to work on when you're a, an editor on a feature you're usually employed for about six months or so six months to a year on the production and um when that's over you have to go look for another job. And uh, a lot of times Paul would say, oh, I've got something coming up, so stay available. But you know, in the meantime, I got into trailer editing with uh, people I knew through New World Pictures. So they 
had uh, enough work constantly where I could just go back and call them and say, hey, do you need help? Yeah, sure. Come on back and uh, you can help out on this stuff. And then when Paul's got another movie to do, oh, all right, I'm going to take time off and go work on that. Um, and that filled the gaps beautifully for the years between 1982 and 1988, basically. And after 88, uh, I didn't do any more feature films because I had gotten married and uh, we had our first child that year. Uh, so I just kind of settled down into a more suburban lifestyle. I said, you know what? Editing trailers is not that bad. And I was uh, working at a nice company and they offered me a full-time job. So I said, I can make as much as I was doing on features. Then I only have to work five days a week instead of six. I don't have yeah. to go on location for a couple of months. You know, it's a much more, much more conducive to a family lifestyle. So uh, I made yeah. the decision to just become a trailer editor full-time and it worked out pretty nicely you were just saying what kind of stuff am i doing now uh, most recently i've been working on avatar 2 the way of water uh doing a lot of um behind the scenes uh featurettes uh, for the dvd release uh we've had a team of editors working on them and uh I, i've just been helping out on that and cutting pieces and trimming and doing all sorts of stuff. And I got to work on other movies like Jurassic World, uh, Dominion, the ghost, the new Ghostbusters movie, a lot of stuff like that. It's a lot of fun. Always variety with trailers. Yeah. That's the other thing with features. You're on a movie for six months to a year and then, uh, People ask you, so what have you been doing? You tell them the name of some movie, and they go, no, I never heard of that movie. Yeah, it didn't do too well. It just came and went <laughs> in the theaters. But with trailers, you know, even if the movie is not that great, it you're on it for a couple of months, and then you're on to other things. It's sure, always yeah. changing. Alan, I, I know that people, they have really strong opinions when it comes to trailers. I was wondering, what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions people have about how you put together a trailer? Well, they a lot of times they blame the editors for mm -hmm. telling the right. whole story. And in fairness, that's usually the studios that make us do that. Mm -hmm. They're, uh, they, you, when you cut these things, they test a lot of times with audiences. And then the audiences go, well, I, I want to know more about it. And they interpret that to be, we need to tell them more about it. But, you know, we've always said in our defense, but that's doing your job. You're making them interested and you want to know more about it. You go see the movie. You don't <laughs> necessarily tell them, you know, go pay your 10 bucks and go see the movie. Um, but other than that, uh, what was, uh, I mean, it, I would, I actually, I, it, the whole process is so fascinating to me because I always wonder how much is dictated compared to how much is like a, a more of a creative process for you. How many times oh. I have to send it back to, to really just trim frame by frame because it's oh so specific gosh. what they want to reveal. Yeah, well, that, that can be anywhere from uh, you get lucky and you finish something on the first try, <laughs> which rarely happens, but sometimes does, um, to 
things where you cut them 30, 40, 50 times. You do so many versions. Um, I had a, a friend uh, who was cutting TV spots for uh, that uh, Nicolas Cage movie, National Treasure. Mm -hmm. This was back in the two, early 2000s. And he cut a spot version one that everybody loved. We said, that, that's great, you know, whatever. He worked on that thing for months, and the studio took it up to like a version 82 or something like that. <laughs> Unbelievable. So when I used to talk to kids in high schools uh, about filmmaking and stuff, I'd always take that along, and I'd say, I'm going to show you a TV spot, 30-second TV spot for this movie. I'm going to show you the version 1 and the version 82, and I want you to guess which one is the version one and which is the 82. And I'd show them both spots and then they would inevitably say, well, that one is the better spot. We like that one. And majority would always say the version one was better. <laughs> it was a fascinating process. And of course the spot had changed so much in that period. But yeah, we used to just do endless revisions a lot of times, but you know, sometimes they were just minor, oh, change this shot or change that uh, line of dialogue a little bit. Um, but, you know, that all goes with the process. Um, you know, sometimes we cut something and we think it's wonderful, but then somebody else has an idea and your first reaction is, oh, I don't want to do that. that that's a dumb idea. <laughs> and then now, thank goodness, with digital editing, it's easier to just say, all right, well, I'm going to keep that version, make a copy, and I'll try right. this. And nine out of ten times, you go, yeah, I see what they're doing. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. That's valid. Maybe that is better. You know? <laughs> <laughs> when you watch uh, trailers edited by other people, do you watch them and sometimes like you can pick out, oh, there was a note there that made them have to do that? Or do you find yourself very critical of other people's <laughs> No, <trailers? laughs> uh, the irony is you can't really ever tell. Uh, a lot of times you just think, wow, that was a great trailer or whatever. And you have no <laughs> idea. It could have finished on version one or it could have been mm -hmm. one of those version 82s. You'd have no way of knowing. Unless you talk to people and they tell you a story about it, but right. <laughs> I, I, I've never been able to detect. D William and Doug, did you guys have any other questions that you haven't gotten around? Well, to what yet? did you guys think of eating Raul? Oh well, I I've said this on the podcast, but it's <laughs> it's my favorite Paul Bartel movie. It's the first movie of his that I saw, and yeah, I I just instantly loved it. Um, and I've rewatched it like several times since then, and I love it more every time. And as I've gotten older, I've kind of come to appreciate it a little bit more too. Like as far as um, the the humor and the kind of the, the the commentary going on. Um, but yeah, that's. I think it's a great movie. I think it really holds up still. And yeah, um, I was actually surprised at that myself when I watched it yesterday. That it did seem to hold up very nicely. I've seen it several times now. I love it. I really, really do. I have to say, the more I watch it recently, I get a little wistful watching it. You know what I mean? Where it's just, it feels like it's of a different era while also feeling very modern. But also the people yeah. involved with it, I have a lot of, of affection for. And not just uh, Paul, but, you know, some of the other people who appear in brief parts, specifically mm -hmm. the people from the Groundlings and things like that. Some of them aren't with us anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's just, it, 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 
I, I, I think I appreciate it more the older I get, but it also makes me a little sad while I'm watching it. Yeah. Mm, yeah. <clears throat> I had never seen it before, so this was my first time watch. And <laughs> I really liked it. And I had, you know, I didn't, I, I kind of had an idea of what it was going in. And when I finished the film, I thought, you know, I really liked it. I really feel like I understood it. But, you know, I, I, there's a way to maybe um, misinterpret it a little bit, I guess, because I watched one of the special features was this interview, and there's this part where the interviewer makes this suggestion about what the movie maybe not is about in the larger sense, but sort of like what the movie is making fun of. And Paul and Mary are like, no, that's wrong. <laughs> and they kind of correct him as to what the movie's about. And it was so in line with what I was feeling that I was like, oh, yeah, all right. You know? it, it, it's weird that you care, but I did kind of care because I thought like, you know, it made sense for who I think that they are, that, you know, if, if there's anyone who is sort of um, – being in some sense mocked or made fun of it is the the main couple of the movie and 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 what they kind of represent about living in the past and things like that and the the all of the various um swingers are you know exaggerations they're not like real people well, yeah because it's how mm-hmm. paul and mary view them like we're seeing right. it from their perspective right 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 and so when when the when the uh when the uh Interviewers like, oh, you kind of represented those people realistically, and they're horrified that he said that. I was like, okay, I'm glad we're yeah. on the same page here because I didn't think that was the point of the movie at all, you know? Right. Yeah, the movie is very charming. I love the scene where Mary and Paul say good night to each other. It's and, so good. And, and oh my god, they're in their separate beds, and Paul's kind of hugging his bottle of chateau yeah he has a wine bottle body pillow (laughs) the fact that he has that is it's like not often do you think a scene relies on a prop but Uh that prop helps that scene so much because you can't help but wonder where the fuck did he even get that (laughs) That, you'll have to save that question for bob schulenberg i'm sure oh i'm sure anyway it was it was a great time working on that movie and uh, I'm glad it still holds up nicely. Alan, thanks so much for talking to yeah. us about it. What a pleasure You've been it wonderful. has been. I, you know, when, when Adriana was saying, do you have any more questions? I swear I could talk to you all day. I have a thousand different questions, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, you've been so open and so wonderful about uh, telling us your experience with this amazing film. And one that I think that, you know, how nice that it, it's been recognized. And, you know, it did people might not think that being in the Criterion Collection is the be-all, end-all, but, I mean, it certainly is a recognition uh, and a celebration, I think, of what Paul Bartel created with this film. Well, I also want to just throw out a shout-out to Criterion. They did an excellent job on the restoration of that movie. Yeah. That right. movie did not look that good when it was first released. There was a <laughs> lot of negative dirt in the prints and um, it just the shaky... Uh, 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 not camera work, but sometimes the camera would jitter in the projectors and things like that. They took all that stuff out of there and cleaned that thing up, and it looked pristine. It was wonderful. Um, yeah, well, anyway, I, I enjoyed my time talking to you, and uh, I would love to you know, come back and chat with you again on any of other, the other films of Paul's. It's wonderful. Yeah, and we'd love to have you back. <laughs> On the next episode of Bar Tell Me Something Good, 
We'll be covering 1984's Not for Publication, uh, one of Paul Bartel's lesser-known movies. Um, and now I guess we're, we're just going to plug some of our social media stuff. Liam, where can our listeners find you online? Well, you know, if they're interested in hearing more episodes of this show, as well as a whole family of shows, a few too many of which I'm also on, uh, they can head to cinepunks.com. Uh, that's C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X dot com. And uh, they can follow Cinepunks on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X. Uh, if they're looking for the archive of Cinema Smorgasbord shows, because we cover a lot of different things uh, on this uh, 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 family of, of shows and subjects, they can head to cinemasmorgasbord.com. Uh, and if they want updates on the latest episodes, they can follow Cinema Smorgasbord on Twitter at Cinema Smorg, S-M-O-R-G. And of course, I'm on Twitter at Liam Rules. I don't do that much stuff, but if you want to follow <laughs> me, that's fine. You want to hear what Liam's complaining about recently? <laughs> yeah, that's mostly. I complain and then I say things I say things that make people mad at me, like Pumpkinhead's not that good, and then people get mad. It's not. It's not. It I, is not. I I appreciate you, but not I not a controversial opinion on this show. Well, it's, I don't know which of the three things I said are are making people slightly – none of them are annoyed. They all know I'm a good dude, but they're all like, oh, man. <laughs> uh, sometimes people get actually annoyed, but this is uh, – none of this is real annoyance. But they're like, oh, man. And I'm like, which which thing that I said made you go, oh, man? But I think Pumpkinhead is the most – is the one that people disagree with the most. So they really love dirt bike montage. <laughs> <laughs> Doug, where can our listeners find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. And as Leah mentioned, if you want to find the entire archive of Bar Tell Me Something Good, yeah, it's over there at cinemasmorgasbord.com or on uh, Twitter at cinemasmorg, S-M-O-R-G. If you are enjoying this podcast or if you have checked out some of those other podcasts, why don't you leave us a review on your podcast provider of choice? It really always helps or hey if you don't want to even go to that effort just tell a friend hey maybe you have a friend who likes paul bartell likes eating raul why don't you tell them about this episode uh every little bit please mm -hmm. and you can find me on twitter at e-a-d-x-b-b although i'm not really that active on there much these days all right well we, we'll see you all next time thanks again for joining us on bartell me something good Majesty, this is delicious. Really? Ho, ho, ho. Nothing but the finest for me and my best friends. What makes doggies happy?